series on James. So, so we've still got a few weeks left. We're going to get into chapter 5 next week and spend some time there. But, but at this point, we've got seven weeks of James behind us. And when you just look back at the ground we've covered, man, it is so great to reflect on what James has talked about and, and taught us as God's Word. So, so we've talked about how to respond well to trials and temptations. What we've seen, we've seen what God says about relationships that all people matter to God. We've talked about this important relationship between faith and words. We've, we've talked about, about the words we use and the care we want to use in, in our conversations and in our speech. we talked about true wisdom, about dealing with conflict, and how that's a heart issue. And so in so many ways, we need James's voice in our lives. I mean, personally, what I so appreciate about the book of James is how James teaches us so clearly and so repeatedly that if following Jesus and, and faith in Jesus, it actually makes this really practical, boots-on-the-ground difference in the way we live our lives. And, and so Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, right? That's where faith starts. But then pretty quickly that spills out into our actions and in our, into our behavior. So, so we need James to keep those important truths in front of us. Well, today we see James stay as practical as he's been. And he gets his foot in the door of our lives with, with a situation and, and an issue that every one of us here today deals with on a daily basis. And then he digs down to the root of that issue. And, and as James does, he shows us how high stakes this issue is. And so the place James gets his foot in the door of our lives today is with, is with the issue of planning and decision-making. This issue of, of decision-making, again, is something we face every day and a lot of times throughout every day. If you do a Google search on how many decisions the per, an average person makes every day, the most popular posts will say that the average person makes as many as 35,000 decisions every day. And now you have to decide if you think that number is higher or not, right? So you have 35,001 decisions to make today. Uh, but, but seriously, even if that number is high by a lot, we still make lots of decisions. We know that's just part of, of, the, of the rhythm, the frequent rhythm, rhythm of our lives. And the fact that the decision fatigue is even a, a, a label we've got today shows us that a lot of us make a lot of decisions. Most of these decisions, they're autopilot decisions. Like when I come into the church building on the mornings I come in, I don't really think a whole lot about the, about the, about, about my flight pattern, about the path that I take in. It's not really a decision for me if I'm going to sleep tonight, right? But those are preset decisions for me. Or other decisions, they're much more reactive. Well, when a friend comes to you and asks for advice, or when a coworker comes to you and says, hey, I need your eyes on this project with me. But then there are, are still a whole lot of decisions we make that are proactive decisions. If you're a senior in high school right now, or maybe a senior in college, you get these proactive decisions, right? Because you're thinking about what's coming up next fall or even this summer. If you're in high school, if you're a senior, you're thinking about, okay, is, is college next for me? And if so, is, is this the college I'm going to go to or is that the college I'm going to go to? Or is something else next for me? And if so, what is that something else that's coming up? If you're a senior in college, you're thinking about what's next. While you're applying for jobs, you're landing long-term housing. But even if we're past that stage of life, we know how many decisions we make. I and mean, we could pull out our phones, 
check our calendars. I mean, just take a second right now and just think about the plans you have coming up later today or later this week. Right, right, right? You've got stuff that's already filling in some of those blanks. Some of us think pretty far in advance, but we're not just thinking about our calendars for 2019. We're starting to fill in slots for 2020 or even 2021. Or again, all of us probably kind of know how we're going to spend our afternoon today. We've got a framework for what's coming up this week. And so all of us here get the relevance of decision-making and planning. And, and the question James just puts in front of us today, as we think about all of these decisions we make, all these plans we have to make, the question James puts in front of you today is, is where is God? In all of that plan. Well, where is God in the decisions that you make? Are you in control of your planning? And usually that becomes not just the planning, but also the outcomes. Because if I'm a planner myself, and so I know how easy it is for this desire to plan, to really just be the nice way of saying, I'm going to control the outcome of that. Are you the king of the hill in your own life? Or in humility and dependence, do you trust in God? Do you look to God, even in something as practical and as day-to-day as the plans that you make? As you plan, because planning is good, we'll talk a little bit about that. As you plan, do you, do you plan with clenched fists? Or do you plan with, with open hands? Can you, be, can you be patiently flexible when the planning board changes? Where is God in your planning? Where is God in the decisions that you make? Could, could you plan a whole day or a whole week or a whole month? And never once think about, about God in that planning. Our answers to these questions, they reveal whether God is just some distant idea to us or whether God is actively and personally involved in the world around us but, but also in our individual lives and the things we deal with every day. So at its core, the fundamental question James is putting in front of you today, putting in front of us today, is, is where is God in your daily life? The place we're going to go today is the end of James chapter 4. We're going to look at James 4, 13 through 17. And, and we're going to see James point out how easy it is to live as if God is a part of our daily lives. It's easy to do that. We're going to see the problem with that. And then we're going to see a better way to live than ignoring and neglecting or overlooking God in our lives. So, so I encourage you to, to turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13. While you're going there, well, let me just put in front of you what James offers us today. James offers us freedom. He offers us peace, releasing us from the burden and, and the weight of feeling like we need to control outcomes. And there's such peace that can come with that. Sure, we still want to make wise plans. We'll, again, we'll talk about that. But James, as he talks about planning and God's role in our daily lives, releases us from the burden of controlling outcomes. And then James helps keep in front of us who God is. That God is actively and personally involved in your day-to-day life, maybe in ways you've never even thought about. But he's there. He's involved. And he's working. And so let's read James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. 
Here's what God's word says. Now, now listen to you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there. We'll carry on business and we'll make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, it's the Lord's will. We will live and do this or that. As it is, we boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So it's right out of the game in this passage. The first thing James calls out for us is this. He, he shows us our bent or, or our natural tendency toward leaving God out of our daily lives. Just the, just the tilt of our lives, James is telling us. We, we can all relate to potholes right now. Uh, Jeff brought this up last week, but they're still a thing. So I'm going to bring it up again. Um, it, it, it has become funny for me to, to watch people in front of me as I'm driving, like do this slalom in and out of their lanes, just to avoid the potholes that, that they're um, they're trying to avoid. Right? But I've actually learned to take a different way home because my flight pattern on the way home is like riddled with some like craters in the in the cement. Right? So, so I actually change my flight pattern home just to avoid the potholes, or or I will audibly groan like ugh. When I hit a pothole that I didn't see coming, usually I'm watching people in front of me dance around their own potholes, right? I mean, so, so we get potholes. And the thing with potholes is that if you hit enough of them or enough big ones, then they're going to knock your car out of alignment. Where ideally, your car should uh, kind of stay straight if you take the hands off the wheel for a second. Not that we advocate taking your hands off the wheel of your car. Right, but, 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 but your car should stay straight until it gets knocked out of alignment a little bit. And then when that happens, your car starts to pull one direction or another. It is pulling your car away other than the way that it was designed. And one of the truths that the Bible teaches, from all the way back in Genesis 3, forward until today, is that every one of us here is out of alignment because of sin. Right, right. This, this sin in us that has knocked us away from how God designed us to operate. And now we're pulled in a certain direction. And, and, and one of the easiest ways we get pulled, that we're most often pulled in the most ways, is we are knocked out of alignment and pulled toward self. James points this out in verse 13. He says, now listen. You who say, stay tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. And then now it's easy to read that verse, and even just a few times, and say, what's wrong with that? that? I mean, what are they supposed to do? These are business leaders. These are entrepreneurs and salespeople. Isn't this sort of planning what they're supposed to do? Now, now there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with travel. There's nothing wrong with business. There's nothing wrong with planning. In the Old Testament, we see all over the place, like, like in the book of Proverbs, for example, the value of planning champion. Or, or in Genesis, the guy named Joseph, he is praised and promoted because he's a good planner. He, he looks ahead and anticipates for Egypt this famine that nails the region, hits the region. You ever go skydiving, right? You want to make sure your instructor is a planner. 
John would say, hey, is there a parachute in this thing? And come would say, well, the Lord wills. Right? I mean, we like planners. Planning has a place. But the problem here isn't with planning. But the problem here in James 4.13 is with the posture of our hearts. Four times in one verse, the, the Greek New Testament uses first plural pronoun verbs. Our, our English versions mask that a little bit. It's just a little bit wooden to read it that way. But, but here from verse 13, it is essentially saying. Verse 15 says, we will go to this or that city. We will spend a year there. We will carry on business. We will make money. Self-sufficiency and presumption is all over that verse. Verse 15 called that, called that arrogant scheming. And God is noticeable. We're everywhere. Where's God? Where's God in your planning? Where's God in the decisions that you make? Where's God in your daily life? This verse that seems so innocent. In, in this verse, James exposes our bent to leave God out of our lives and live for myself. Get, get along my path or get out of my way. That sort of approach. And, and, and we should feel this because, because however true this was for business leaders and entrepreneurs in James's day, I, I'm convinced this is true for all of us here in this room today. We are, we are defined by a culture that is all about leaving God out of the picture and promoting self I mean, let's go to the deep end of the pool for a minute. I'm going to show you how philosophers and sociologists have been noticing this now for a while. And the water we're swimming in is saturated with self. So in 2007, a Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, he wrote this book called A Secular Age, 900 pages, right? Which is awesome in and of itself. Um, writes this book, A Secular Age, that that has been a game changer in the religious world. So many people are talking about this book and the ideas this book has generated. So, so even if you've never heard of it, you have been influenced by what Charles Taylor calls out and talks about in his book, A Secular Age. Thankfully, there's this guy, also a philosopher, by the name of James K.A. Smith, that's taken 900 pages and whittled it down to about a 200-page summary or so. And, and here's what James Smith says, summarizing a secular age. He says, it seems that many have managed to construct a world of significance that isn't at all bothered by questions of the divine. Your neighbors inhabit what, what Charles Taylor calls an imminent frame, which is just a technical language saying that they are no longer bothered by the God question as a question because they're devotees of exclusive humanism. This is a phrase that means a, a way of being in the world that offers significance with no transcendence. Fulfillment without God. Self. They don't feel like anything. So, so 
by the divine. We pursue significance today totally separate from transcendence. This is just some fancy way of saying that our bent is towards me, is towards ourselves. We're about the same time, 2009, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith out of Notre Dame, he produced a large study, I think it was the largest of its time, where he surveyed just a whole lot of teenagers and young adults, people in their 20s. And his conclusion after this, thousands of people surveyed, was that the default mode of religion for emerging generations is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Right? So a lot of syllables, that's a fancy schmancy label. Right? But, but, but here's what he's getting at. God is mostly concerned with your external behavior. That, that, that's the moralistic part. He's not mostly concerned with helping you feel good. That's the therapeutic part. But then, but then really for today, what I want you to zero in on is that deistic word. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It says that, that God is pretty much entirely removed. Pretty much entirely disinterested with your life on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. And so the bottom line of all of this is that our culture has created whole systems of thought, plausibility structures that reinforce our bent towards ourselves, towards removing God from our daily lives, towards elevating ourselves, our agenda. This has become normal for us. We just think that's the way it is. I don't say that to scare us, and, and I don't want to overreact to some of these truths by, by creating other problems. But instead, all I'm trying to do is get us to see that now, in ways that in history before us, this wasn't the case. Now it is easier than ever before to live as if God doesn't exist. Or if he does, he's really not that involved in the decisions that I make or the plans that I plan. There's a better way to live. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But first, we just follow James's train of thought. He shows us the problem with this way of thinking in verse 14. So verse 15, James is calling out this, this living, this planning that's entirely self-sufficient. And then in verse 14, he explains what's wrong with that. He says, he says why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. When we play God over our lives, when, when we remove him from that role and take the seat he's supposed to occupy in our hearts, then, then we will think we have more control over our lives than we actually do. This is why James spells it out for us as clearly and as directly as he does. He says, he says none of us knows what's going to happen to our lives tomorrow. I mean, we really know what's going to happen to our lives this afternoon. And any one of us here right now could get a phone call, our phone could vibrate in our pocket, and in 10 seconds, the course of our lives could change. We know that. We know how fragile our lives and our planning is. I, I can point to so many examples of this in my own life. I mean, my own career trajectory is a great example of this. When I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, I, I wanted to be an engineer, which looking back doesn't make any sense to me because I was never good at math, I didn't like math, but, but I wanted to be an engineer. Right? But then, but then my sophomore and junior years, God started, God started to get a hold of my life in, in some big ways that just hadn't been true before that. 
And so my junior year, I started to feel these, these consistent and these, these increasingly strong tugs or calls into ministry. I didn't know what that looked like, but I was like, okay, maybe God wants me to serve him like full time somehow, some way in the future. So I followed where that led, and I ended up in a small Christian school that was in Omaha. Loved it there. Loved studying to be in ministry, learning about the Bible and theology, things like that. And, and this tug, this call into ministry, was only confirmed more and more. So I went from, from this college in Omaha to a seminary in Chicago, where I spent a few years of care. And I loved it. Uh, but when I started seminary, I, I thought, okay, I think the place God was calling me to be a university professor what I wanted to do. But by those first four to six weeks of, of seminary, God just, he, he changed my tastes, is the best way I can describe it. He, he changed my desires away from being a professor, right, for, for saying, so maybe where I want you is, is to serve some local church, serve a congregation, and just to faithfully do that. And so, so I redirected myself that way. And I mean, it was looking forward to it. I finished seminary, turned down a couple jobs that I didn't think were a good fit for me, and I put all of the eggs of my career basket in, uh, in kind of one church that I thought I was going to end up in in a city in Kansas. I, I was set on it. I thought, okay, God, here's where you have for me. Turned down these other jobs, so it's the only thing I've got going. Uh, they called me back after a couple visits to Terry and I made down there, called me back and said, hey, we love you. But not just for this role you're applying for, we need someone with some more experience for that position. So, so it didn't pan out. And so I leave seminary, leave Chicago, with a seminary degree, a wife, a three-month-old, and no job. Not a good plan, right? And so we move back to Omaha. We move in with my parents in their basement, which, yeah, thanks, Mom and Dad, for that, yeah, legitimately. And just to see what's next. Brookside threw me a bone. Started out here part-time in some roles. And now, 14 years later, I can't imagine better people to work with or a better thing to do with the way that I spend my time. But, but if you were to ask me at any point along that trajectory, do you think you're going to end up back in Omaha at the church I grew up in? Because I grew up in Brookside since my third grade? No! I would have had no idea that was coming. Every one of your lives has so many twists and turns. We just don't see them coming. We know how fragile our planet is. How many variables can change that? So some of that is because of decisions that, that we made. But a whole lot of that variability is because of things that happen to you that are entirely outside of your control. If you think you are in ultimate control of your life, those twists and those turns that we all know happen, they're, they're going to burn you up and wrap you around an axle so quickly. Or, or this reality that God is involved, that God is sovereign and he's good, that he cares, right? This can cause us to look to God, to depend on him, and then to trust in his sovereignty and his goodness. And so instead of panic, we can have
Mercy also shows us that when we leave God out of our daily lives, one casualty of that is that we will entirely miss having an eternal perspective. You will entirely miss that your life is really short and eternity is really long. And as you plan out the next week and the next month and the next year, you can completely overlook planning for eternity and living life with that eternal perspective. James says that our life is like a mist. Right? So earlier this week, I was ironing some shirts. Because real men iron shirts. Like I was spray bottle next to me that I spray on some shirts because I think that's how you're supposed to iron shirts, right? So I spray on this little mist on some of the especially wrinkled shirts. And then when that hot iron touched that damp shirt, it would shoot up this, this vapor that lasted just for a second. And then it was gone. That's where our minds are like on this earth. We are here for such a brief time. And then we're gone. Let me do a little exercise with you. I don't do this very often, but this is one of those kind of congregational response times. I'm going to ask you a question. I actually want you to raise your hand. Very simple way to participate if, if this is true of you or not. So, so if you know the first name of your great-great-grandfather, raise your hand. First name, great-great-grandfather. Wow, a little bit better than first service. Okay, let's ask great-great. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Great-great-grandmother. You know the first name of your great-great-grandmother. Keep your hand up if it wasn't before. All right, but let me put my hand down because I, I don't know that my great-great-great-grandparents. But so, okay, go ahead and put your hands down. But, but you see that in a congregation this size, only a very small percentage of us know the first names of someone in our families that really wasn't that long ago. They were alive. They were doing their own thing. They were making their own plans, having their own families, struggling with their own problems. And now, just a few generations later, most of us, I don't know their names. I couldn't tell you a thing about my great-great-grandparents. Our lives are like a mist. Here for a while, and then forgotten. If God is a part of your life, that could be scary. That can, create, that can create fear, anxiety, panic. But when God is part of our lives, when we have a relationship with God through His Son Jesus, we have hope beyond this, right? Hope beyond the spray bottle. That, that we, we know that all of us really live forever. And for those that follow Jesus, there's an eternity to look forward to, to know God and experience joy in His presence. To be known by him and by others. But, but if we stop at the end of verse 14, where James points out our lack of control, where he points out the gravity of our lives, and our feelings would be fear, anxiety, discouragement, just being unsettled. They wouldn't be good. Thankfully, though, James goes on in verse 15. Points us all toward a better way. Here's what verse 15 says. James says, instead, so instead of self-focused living that leaves God out of our plans and our daily lives, instead, you ought to say this Lord's will. We will we'll live, we'll do this or that. So, so just like back in verse 13, there's planning. People are making decisions 
one day will come back and make everything right is factored in to the equation. And so here's how James tells us to, to resolve this problem of self-sufficient, self-focused living. So it's not flashy, right? It's very straightforward. It makes sense. But it is so important for us to remember. James tells us the solution to our independence is just daily dependence on God. Where we just invite God into our everyday lives. Because he's inviting us to see that he's involved in our everyday lives. He's active. He cares. He knows what's going on. And he's, he's very directly and personally involved. There's a whole lot of people today in different leadership circles talking about, about the value of emotional intelligence and good people skills. And, and a, a big part of emotional intelligence is something called reading the room, which is being very aware of the people that you're in the room with, maybe you're meeting with or across the table talking to. But when you're aware of, of kind of how they're doing, how they're processing things, best you can, you try to read their thoughts and their emotions, their actions and their, their reactions. You pay attention to who's there with you. Brookside, James is telling us, read the room and, and make sure that you know that God is in the room. Again, the one who created the world sent his son to save us and is coming back to redeem everything and restore everything. He's in the room. Factor that into how you read the room. Make decisions. Go about your daily lives. So, so how does his presence, his power, his goodness, his plan, how does that shape what you need to be about? And how does that shape who you're becoming? So easy to say all of this. So easy, I think, to mentally wrap our minds around, yep, daily dependence kind of makes sense. We, we get it. But, but practically living in light of this, it is where the rubber meets the road. So I want to take just a few final minutes here and talk about some very practical ways we can live in daily dependence. We are five minutes out. Five minutes out. We are five minutes out. Instead, this is a direction that we head. This is a posture of our hearts. And so a daily dependence on God, it starts with a declaration of dependence. Earlier in James 4, before James ever starts talking about planning and schedules and the things we've been looking at today, earlier in the chapter, he, he talks about the, the value of humbling ourselves before God. He tells us to submit ourselves to God. And so if you really intend on, on depending on God in your daily decisions, then the place that starts is with a declaration that begins in your heart. Where you declare Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Where, where you say, Jesus, I know I can't do this on my own. Maybe you've seen how plans have backfired for you. Or maybe you've seen how the plans have come to fruition in all of the ways you thought they would. But you're still empty and unfulfilled. So maybe you're saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I, I need you to save me from myself. And so were you very consciously, even just heart to heart, silently you and God, you declare faith in Jesus, what he's done for you on the cross. You say, Jesus, forgive my 
my sins. Forgive me for living life for myself. I'll follow you as my Savior and my Lord. So, so daily dependence starts with a declaration of dependence. And then the second thing you can do to, to practice this sort of daily dependence is to see that it's fueled by prayer. At its most basic level, prayer is just talking with God. And the absence of prayer is one of the clearest indicators that we're doing what James 4 tells us not to do. That we're living life for ourselves and by ourselves. But, but on the flip side, the practice of prayer is one of the best ways to, to uproot independence in your life. And to start living in life, daily in life, of dependence on God. So, so let me give you a few suggestions for growing in prayer. Just because I think it's not big of a deal. So if this is brand new to you. Here's what I'd say you start with first. These are good things for all of us to do. Personally, I found it helpful to bookend my day in prayer. And so that just means you take a few minutes when the day starts, right? But, but before you get into the hustle and bustle of what's on your calendar, to, to look ahead to your day and think about it in light of God's presence and His activity. For me, I, I kind of do that when I'm driving to work for that 13, 15 minutes worth of time. And just review my day ahead in light of who God is. To see how that will shape how I approach my day. And then the second half of that bookend is at the end of the day, before I drift off to sleep, I, I review the day that has been in light of God's presence and His activity. And, and this sometimes leads to time of confession, sometimes to, to gratitude, sometimes to requests, praying God, do more of this based on what I see, how you do today. Or, or another thing, just very practically with prayer, is just pray before you eat. Super simple, but it can be so easily overlooked. You're with a family, this is a great way to lead your family. You don't have a family, you still do this. Because, because meals are kind of one of those natural rhythms that are just built into our lives. Let's leverage those rhythms. And, and even if those prayers before your meals, even if they sound pretty much the same from meal to meal, that's okay. Because if our, if our heart is in that, what a great way to say, to say God, ultimately... I know this is from you. And then to recommit the rest of your day to him. So, so daily dependence starts with this declaration of dependence. is fueled by prayer. And then third, daily dependence means when we plan with open hands. Planning has its place. I really hope you've heard me say that a lot today. But when you plan, don't plan with clenched fists. Plan with, with open hands. Homes. Shift your mindset so that you see the interruptions to your day, because we know they're going to come. Interruptions happen. There may be a disruption to your own plans, but interruptions don't disrupt God's plans. Shift your mindset so, so that way you see the interruptions. Go ahead, one. One, you ready. To focus on something else that He would maybe have for you in that moment.